All right, good morning. Uh, we just, that, there was a line in that song that we just sang that asked a question, is creation groaning? And that's a question, that's a rhetorical question if you look around today. Creation is groaning. It's called the birth pangs, the birth pangs of Messiah. You see, creation knows it needs a Messiah. So many people don't. They're blind to it. I was standing in the line at the grocery store late last night and walked in and the pouring rain got soaked and I walked up and the, the lady, the cashier was for some reason just thought I had a great sense of fashion and told me that I looked really nice and just what I had on was just really cool. I just threw something on to go up to the mountain yesterday. I had a scarf on, my jacket was soaking wet and I told her I don't try to be fashionable but I guess it just happens sometimes. And then she was uh, talking about how uh, all of this weird weather, you know, 72 degrees in January and all this rain and all of this. And I just looked at her and I said, well, creation is groaning. Uh, It's groaning for its Messiah. And the Messiah is coming. And that's what we're reading about this morning. On my way over here, I was listening to an old song from the 70s, an old Christian song, and it says... Tell me how it's going to be. Read it from the Bible again. I can't wait to see Jesus because Jesus is coming again. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. And how do I know how it's going to be? Because I'm going to read it from the Bible again. And we can comfort one another with these words. You know, the Bible tells us lots of things that people find hard to believe. But time and time again, what men once claimed as science becomes obsolete and what the Bible has always said is demonstrated to be true through archaeology, through observation. You know, one of the areas in the Bible that has been mocked the most down through the last couple of centuries is the record of the biblical plagues that God sent upon Egypt in the Old Testament. You know, water turning to blood, hail and fire, ice and fire mixed together. Plagues of locusts, all of these things that people say, ah, you know, that didn't really happen. You know, maybe somebody cut into an iron vein in one of the rivers and a bunch of iron came out and it turned the water red and they thought it was blood. Or, you know, it was darkness because there was a sandstorm that blocked out the sun. Or, um, uh, you know, the locusts, there was a famine somewhere and there was an unusual number of locusts. And all of these things that just can't happen. This is mythology. It's not real. But when creation groans, we get a small taste that these things are very real. Are you aware that since the new year that there have been manifestations of things around this world in the most unlikely of places that very closely resemble what we read about in the Bible? Just, I think it was a week or two ago, in two different places, uh, in, in, a, in the African country of Malawi and in Indonesia, there were rivers that suddenly turned to a thick, red-looking substance. It looked just like blood. Go look it up. There's pictures online. People were freaked out in Malawi at why they woke up one morning and their river was blood red. And I'm not talking about an iron-type river like you see in the far north in Canada. I'm talking a thick, nasty-looking substance. It's happened a couple of places. In Three, at least three places simultaneously the first part of the year, first week of the year, there were freak hailstorms in the most unlikely spots 
in a place called Swaziland, which is in southern Africa, a freak hailstorm killed an entire herd of cattle and a, and a farmer. You can see the pictures of these cattle laying on their side with their uh, legs sticking up in the air. At the same time, in Saudi, the Saudi Arabian desert, hail the size of baseballs fell on that, on that desert floor, and it looks like it snowed in the middle of the desert. There was so much hail. And then in central Australia, in the wheat belt, there was a crazy freak storm. Ice and lightning mixed together so that the hail and brush fires that resulted as a, as, as a, from the lightning strikes happened simultaneously and destroyed lots of crops. And these things are happening. And you can see it with your own eyes. You can look at the photos there, but people just are too blind to see. How many remember that eclipse that passed over the United States a few years ago? Darkness over the land. From the west coast to the east coast, that eclipse passed over. The Bible speaks about signs in the heavens in the end times. People from long ago were smart enough to know and see signs in the heavens that portended judgment. And what happened after that eclipse? This country had one of the worst hurricane seasons it's ever had. But nobody batted an eye because they care more about the football game. They care more about Robert Mueller and his stupid little report. They care more about these things than what's so blatant and obvious all around us. The Bible said there would be signs in the heavens. The Bible said that the groaning of, of creation would be clear to herald the Messiah. But everyone is too blind. Tonight there's going to be an interesting phenomenon around midnight. A blood moon that happens. A lunar eclipse of the moon that's going to happen when the moon is really close to the earth. And so it should be a sight to see. It'll be around 11, between 11 and 12, I think. I don't know if you read about it. But if you're up that late, uh, we're going to go hang out with Robert tonight. We're going to stay late maybe. We'll see if we can see that moon. But it's going to pass over the United States. And hey, God's warnings to the wicked are very clear. The, the creation is groaning. Go look up some pictures of those dead cows. And look at the picture of that cloud over the desert of Saudi Arabia. It's scary. Recently also, did you see the swarms of locusts that descended upon Islam's most holy site in Mecca? <laughs> Just hordes of bugs. These ridiculous religious idol worshipers are standing around and just bugs everywhere. You can see pictures of where they were having to sweep it up. Horde of bugs descends upon Islam's holiest site. The holiest site of a bunch of filthy, wicked insects. Idol worshipers. What an appropriate sign that insects, filthy insects would descend upon a Filthy shrine that honors a God that's nothing like the God of this Bible. Islam is a lie. And God always and has always had a sense of humor. Interesting to see signs or to see events in these days that don't make, that in fact make the biblical plagues seem all the more believable. But still men put their hands in their ears. But these birth pangs herald the coming of Messiah. And the coming of Messiah is what we've been talking about in Revelation chapter 19. You see, one day the heavens 
in which we see signs of this groaning are going to open. And when they open, what creation longs for is going to come down and restore what was damaged long ago in the Garden of Eden. We've been talking about the marriage of the Lamb. We've been looking at the Jewish wedding and how it's reflected in God's plan and purpose for the church. Not something we're foisting upon the Scriptures, but something that's obviously alluded to in the Scriptures because Jesus uses the analogy of the wedding. God uses the analogy of the wedding. And those Jews to whom he was talking would have obviously known what he was talking about. And so we've been looking at the different parts of the Jewish wedding. We talked about the arrangement, the period of betrothal and espousal, the the fetching or the rapture of the bride. Last time we talked about the ceremony and the consummation and the marriage supper, all of which followed the wife making herself ready. We discussed the relationship of the bride's preparation to the judgment seat of Christ. So this marriage in heaven, this marriage supper is after the judgment seat. And the bride, the church, is dressed in fine linen, clean and white. And uh, we, we, we got into the marriage supper. Now we're going to move into verse 10 as we prepare to see the last stage manifested here. And that's the public presentation. After this private supper, this ceremony, consummation in the, in the groom's father's home, then the new bride and her husband are put forth a, pro, a, a public presentation they leave his father's home and they go dwell in their own home from which they build their own family. Last time I, I mentioned how it's important that we do not confuse this marriage supper in verse 9. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's an invitation here. Later we're told the Spirit says come. It's the Spirit of God that invites and the bride says, come, the church is to invite. Whosoever will, let him drink of this water of life freely. Well, that's not religion. For God to invite you to drink something freely is not religion. Religion costs you something. God's salvation cost him. Oh, it'll cost you something in this life once you have it. But it doesn't cost you anything to get it. It costs a son. Whosoever will drink of this water freely, not religion. But we have to be careful we don't confuse the marriage supper with something very different, which is Christ's fulfillment of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Those feasts that were given to Israel in the, in the book of Leviticus to observe in chapter 23 of Leviticus were a picture of God's plan and purpose for Israel with regard to the Messiah. And Messiah would come and fulfill those feasts. There were four spring feasts, the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Christ fulfilled these literally in his first coming. He was crucified on Passover. He was buried at the start of the unleavened bread. He was in the ground before that feast started. On the Feast of First Fruits, three days later, that particular year, A.D. 30, he rose up from the grave. And then on the Feast of Pentecost, 
50 days later, the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. These feasts were fulfilled. There are three feasts that the Jews would celebrate in the fall that have not been fulfilled. The Feast of Trumpets, which I believe will be fulfilled at the rapture of the church. The Feast of Atonement, which I'll, I, be, I believe will be fulfilled when Israel wakes up and recognizes their error, their grave error. That is the, 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 the mistaken identity concerning the Messiah. They will recognize how they have failed to see the truth and they will call for him. The Feast of Atonement. Christ will come and rescue them. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. That's where God comes down and dwells with Israel. As he did in the desert in Sinai. The Feast of Tabernacles uh, was when Israel would come up and dwell in booths to, to remember when God dwelt with them as he did in the wilderness. And Christ the Messiah will return and dwell as king, not over, uh, only of Israel, but as the emperor of this entire world. His capital will be in Jerusalem, and God will dwell with men. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. God dwelling with men in the millennial kingdom. This marriage supper here is not a reference to that. Many look at the marriage supper as the Feast of Tabernacles. The marriage supper is primarily in reference to the church, the bride of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ, God dwelling with men, is in reference primarily to Israel, Jehovah's divorced wife who will be restored at that time. And the proof that these two are not being, uh, that this is not being referred to here is the fact that another supper is mentioned in verse 17. And that's the supper of the great God. So we have to focus on context. One supper is being contrasted with the other. And it's very important that we don't foist something else on the scriptures that's not there in that context. Recently, Eric and Mindy heard somebody talking about the scriptures and how we, how dispensationalists are always worried about context. And we don't need to be worried about context. And then they went on to try to share something from the scriptures that they believed to be the case, and then ignored the very next verse that disproved their entire argument. Tried to say things like, well, uh, this teaching that the church will be raptured out, why should we get raptured out and not have to suffer when Israel has to suffer? Well, I guess you don't, you know, you claim to care so much about Jewish things, but I guess you don't know anything about a Jewish wedding. I guess you never read about the fetching of the bride. Context is important. A text without a context is a proof text for a pretext. So context is important here. Here we have two suppers in chapter 19. Two invitations. We have the supper of the Lamb and we have the supper of the great God. Blessed are those who are invited to the supper of the Lamb. But we're going to see later that those invited to the supper of the great God are the fowls of heaven. They're invited to come feast, to feast on the flesh of men. Two suppers, two invitations. We're in heaven in verse 9 and into verse 10 after the judgment seat of Christ before the second coming. That's where we're at. We talked about the marriage supper, the bride. 
And there's mention in Matthew chapter 22 in Jesus' parable, the wedding feast of the guest. The guests in a Jewish wedding would be gathered. After the, after the marriage was consummate, consummated, the bride, and his, uh, the bride and her groom would come out of the chuppah or the wedding chamber and join the guests at a supper to celebrate. Close friends, family, things like that. Who are the guests? We've talked about the bride We've talked about the groom. Let's mention the guest here for a minute. I, I have already, but look, for the sake of part review and, and some other details, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we have reference here in verse 15. I'll read verse 14 to set the context. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So here we have a reference to not the bride of Christ or the body of Christ, but the whole family of God. The whole family of God. We often speak of the family of God as if it's limited to the New Testament church. Please understand that the church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. God's family is bigger than that. I'm not suggesting that there's other ways to God. I'm not suggesting that at all. There's one way to God, and that's through Messiah. But there's a family of God. In this day and time, in this dispensation, there's one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ. Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And it's always been about Messiah. Never different from the dawn of time. But the family of God, the whole family referenced here in Ephesians 3, would include obviously the bridegroom, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It would include the bride, not the adulterous wife of Jehovah, Israel, that will one day be restored, but the virgin bride of Christ, Jew and Gentile together in one body, but it would also include what's referenced in the book of John as the friends of the bridegroom. Turn to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we have John the Baptist speaking. Some of the Jews come to John and say, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, he's baptizing now and men are coming to him. John chapter 3 verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You can't receive truth about God unless he gives it to you. You can't have power to do anything unless God gives it to you. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. But that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. The friend of the bridegroom waits for the bridegroom's voice. He rejoices at his, at his friend's marriage. He rejoices at the consummation in the chuppah. The friend of the bridegroom. 
John the Baptist here is the end of the Old Testament prophets. He's the end. The friends of the bridegroom are the Old Testament saints. They're a part of this supper. The Old Testament saints from going all the way back from Adam and his line all the way up to Abraham, all the way up to John the Baptist. In Matthew 22.10, we're told that the wedding table is furnished with guests. Not only does this family include the Old Testament saints, but it includes the tribulation saints. The tribulation saints are not the bride of Christ. They are those who are martyred during the reign of Antichrist because they have believed upon the testimony of the Jewish witnesses concerning the Messiah that is soon coming. And they pay for it with their lives. They're martyred. They're part of this family. When you consider the Old Testament saints and you go look at the Song of Solomon, the Song of Solomon is interesting because I do believe it illustrates for us what the relationship between a husband and his wife should be. But I also think we, we see things that foretell that give us a picture or a type of what the relationship is between the bridegroom, the Messiah, and his bride, the church. We can look and see things in the interactions of these, this Shulamite woman and her lover and King Solomon and these things that show or are types of what we see revealed in the New Testament, just like Enoch, a type of the church, taken out before the judgment of the flood. Noah, a type of Israel, preserved through the flood. We see some similarities here. And in the Song of Solomon, there's reference made to the wedding party, including the queen, or queens, that's the bride, and then you have the concubines and the virgins. You have two types of Old Testament saints. The concubines, those Old Testament saints from Adam to Moses... I mean, those uh, Old Testament saints from Adam to Moses before the law. And then you have the virgins. Who are called virgins in Revelation chapter 14? The Jewish remnant or the tribulation saints. You have queens, concubines, virgins, the friends of the bridegroom. So the family of God is bigger than just the church. This supper is furnished with guests. We have the Old Testament saints. The martyr tribulation saints. We have those that were saved before the law by faith in a coming Messiah. Those saved after the law by faith in a Messiah who would fulfill the law. There's another part of God's family that's not here yet, and that's called the millennial saints. They don't appear until after the second coming. They're not present at the marriage. The millennial saints are those that are born and live in the millennium and believe upon Messiah and submit themselves to Him. People will be born. People will live and die. We don't have to worry about that because we'll have our new bodies, as will the Old Testament saints. But the millennial saints will be born. They'll be raised up. People will live long like they did, I believe, before the flood. Psalm 45 and Song of Solomon, chapter 6, are interesting because they kind of parallel some of these things we see psalm 45 is a prophetic picture of the messiah and his public presentation as the king 
And standing at his side is his queen. That's the church. So the public presentation phase of a Jewish wedding is seen there in, in, in Psalm 45. So we have the wedding furnished with guests. These guests include the whole family of God. These are the true sayings of God. Revelation chapter 19 ends. Blessed are those which are called to the marriage supper. These are the true sayings of God. The word translated sayings here in the plural is the same word in John chapter 1 that references Jesus as the word of God. The logos. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And then later, and the Word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Here we have these, what has been said here, are the true Logos, plural, of God. Not just this invitation, but everything in this book is the true saying of God. Now, this is a stumbling block for many who call themselves Christians. Oh, the Bible's not the sayings of God. It's the sayings of men. In fact, there was a fool of a woman, a beast of a woman, that stood up in Washington yesterday at this filthy, vile women's march that represents everything that's in direct opposition to God's teaching concerning godliness amongst women stood up and called herself a Christian yesterday, talked about she was a Christian pastor. Well, the moment that comes out of a woman's mouth, just turn it off, because we've already got a problem. We already know they don't take the Word of God seriously. If a woman is pastoring a church, you automatically know she doesn't take this book seriously. And if she can't take it seriously in something as clear as what's written about the pastorate in 1 Timothy and Titus, then how can you trust her to tell you anything else worth listening to? One man's opinion. I didn't say it. What's written there in Timothy and Titus, God did. And there needs to, need to be an interpretation. It's pretty clear. But she got up and talked about, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like these Christians who believe Everything that's written in the Bible. I actually believe there's many ways to God. And she stood up there and, uh, and, and him hauled around and uh, uh, gallivanted around with people representing the, the filthy, wicked, evil idolatry of Islam, homosexuality, and all these other things. And said, I'm a Christian that believes there's other ways to God. I don't take the Bible seriously. And we think, oh, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous and that's just extreme. Well, you'd be surprised how non-extreme that is in American churches. How common that attitude is. Some people just have the guts to say what's in their hearts and others keep it secret. But that attitude is prevalent in this church. Excuse me. Christians that don't take seriously this book. But the testimony is that these are the true sayings of God. That's the difference between a real Christian and a false Christian. A false Christian has trouble with that. But a true believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit understands that these are the true sayings of God. This concerning the invitation to the wedding supper is the true saying of God. 
Jesus Christ being the only way to heaven, the testimony of Him Himself, the testimony of the Old Testament prophets, the testimony of the apostles in Acts, that's a true saying of God. What God says about homosexuality, true saying of God. What He says about the qualifications for ministry, true sayings of God. What He says about the filthy, wicked rabbis in rabbinic Judaism, true sayings of God. What He says about the great whore, the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, true sayings of God. What He says about trannies and homos and dykes and bulldaggers, true sayings of God. What He says about how to rid a country of this stuff, What he says about what a righteous nation does to purify itself when it's overrun by this filth. True sayings of God. I'm not going to make any apology for anything written in this book. For these are the true sayings of God. We don't need to be like these false Christians out here. We need to be like the Thessalonians. When Paul came preaching... After receiving that Macedonian call, look at their testimony concerning the sayings of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. The Thessalonians didn't receive it as the sayings of men. They received it as the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believed. Jesus said that those who reject his words as the word of God will be judged by that word in the last day. You see, the word is the judge. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to say that he that rejecteth me and my words already has a judge. In fact, He doesn't need, I'm not needed to be the judge because he already has a judge. That's the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. These are the true sayings of God. This is our manual. This is our authority. Not the United States government. Not senators and congressmen who in a saner time would be tried for treason. And they'd be Ceausescu'd. If you don't know what that means, go look up history. They'd be tried for treason, they'd be found guilty, and they'd be executed swiftly in a saner time. But they're not our authority. Even the president, not our authority. This is our authority. And there comes a time when we need to be steadfast and we need to be defiant in the face of those who would tell us that these are the sayings of men. Not violently defiant. We're never called to be violent in our defiance. But peaceably defiant. That's what a missionary ought to be today, peaceably defiant. That's what a pastor and a Christian in the workplace should be, or serving in government, or serving in the military, peaceably defiant. That means when somebody comes along and tells you that you can't talk about Jesus, or you can't display the Ten Commandments, you're peaceably defiant. You don't shake in your boots and all of a sudden give it up because some atheist organization sent you a letter in the mail. You're peaceably defiant. Your attitude is bring it. We need more pastors in this country who when threatened say, bring it. We don't have to fight anyway. God will fight for us. All we do need to do is stand there. I'm going to talk more about 
this word of God. These are the true sayings of God. If these are the true sayings of God, there's two things you better not do. And we're going to see this at the end of the book. You better not add to it like the Jewish rabbis, and you better not take away from it like the Christian pastors today or the pseudo-Christian pastors. You better not add to it. You better not take away from it. But we'll see when the heavens are open and Messiah comes back. His name is called the Word of God. Here we see the Logos again. So we have the written Word of God and we have the living Word of God. And when we get there, in verse 13, I'm going to talk about the relationship between the living Word and the written Word. They're inseparable. You can't separate the two. There's so much, they, they share so many common features as revealed in the scriptures, that you can't separate the two. Therefore, there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't believe the Bible. No such thing. Period. That woman standing on that dais or whatever that was yesterday, she's headed to hell. She's not a Christian. Her Christ is not the Christ of the Bible. She's on her way to hell and taking people with her. She must repent. Verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we're told here that the one telling John these things, John falls down at his feet to worship him. And he says, wait, stop. I'm not, you need to worship God. I'm just one of your brethren. I'm a fellow servant just like you. Worship God. Who is the he that John falls down before? Well, you have to go back to the beginning of chapter 17. The nearest antecedent to that pronoun. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me. Come on, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great whore. This is who John falls down to worship. One of the seven angels that had the seven vile judgments. What do we first hear about them in chapter 15, verse 6? And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And then in chapter 16... The seven angels are told, go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial. Remember you had the seven seal judgments as the Messiah opens the title deed of the earth. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet is the seven vials. And these seven vials are poured out by seven angels. One of whom comes to talk to John. And before whom John falls down. To make homage. And John is corrected. He's rebuked. Don't do this. Just like Paul and Barnabas. When they went into Iconium. I believe it was Iconium. After being thrust out of Antioch and Pisidia. In the old territory of Galatia. They came in there. And somebody was healed. And then the people started worshiping them. They worshiped Barnabas like he was Jupiter. And Paul was Mercury. And they said wait a minute. And they tore their clothes. They weren't like the TV preacher or the rabbi or the priest who loves to be worshipped by men, they tore their clothes and said, wait a minute. It's these vanities that God's going to judge you for. We're just men. It's the same thing here. 
false teacher loves to be worshipped. He loves the praise of men. But a true teacher says, don't worship me. I'm a nobody. Worship God. Worship Christ. Who are these seven angels? He says here, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren which have the testimony of Jesus. Now, if that's the case, this entity does not sound like one of the angels like Gabriel or Mark, Mike, Michael or those that came to announce the birth of Messiah. A fellow servant and a brother in Christ sounds more like a saint. Are the seven angels here actually saints? And not an angel member is a messenger. Remember in the letters to the seven churches, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, unto the angel of the church of Smyrna, there was a message given to a messenger who was to take it to the church. And we talked about how that word angel primarily means messenger. There are heavenly messengers and there are earthly messengers. And perhaps those angels being mentioned there are the pastors of those churches. But angels are messengers. Jesus said that in heaven, his people will be as the angels in heaven. Are these seven angels saints? Well, we see in chapter 15, 6, they're clothed in exactly what the wife is clothed. Pure and white linen. We've just been told that the wife of the bridegroom is clothed in fine linen, clean and white. When I go and look at Acts chapter 6, the first group of those called out of the church to go and serve was a group of seven men. What were they in the early church? What were these seven servants of the church called? Deacons. The first group of deacons was seven deacons. I see in the book of Joshua, it was seven priests, a group of seven priests that went before Israel around the walls of Jericho, blowing the trumpets, and then the walls came tumbling down. I just find that kind of interesting. Perhaps this is another group of seven saints who have a special purpose, and that is to help meet out the judgment of God. Just as those seven deacons were called to serve the Lord. Did you know that we see in the lives of at least two of those deacons, very quickly after they're called, they're not sitting around serving tables and telling the pastor about the church budget and making sure that uh, everybody's doing everything right in terms of uh, 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 paying bills and keeping the yard clipped at the church. They're out preaching on the streets. Stephen was a street preacher. Philip was an evangelist. So if we want to know what a deacon looks like or what the first deacons understood their role to be, go look and see what the first deacons were doing right after they were called. Servants of the church. You had priests that were called to announce the judgment and to, to participate in carrying it out upon the city of Jericho. Here we have a group of seven angels that are called to meet out the judgment of God. And then John goes to fall down and worship one. He says, wait a minute. I'm just like you. Worship God. Funny thing about these deacons, you know, we see deacons a lot of times in Baptist churches. The problem with a lot of Baptist churches is you've got deacons who are acting like elders and they're not qualified for the office. So they're sitting around telling the pastor what to do and if the pastor wants to, to preach the truth or if he wants to take a step of faith in the church... 
is deacons always standing in the way. Deacons are supposed to be servants given to the responsibilities of the church in such a way that the pastor can give his time or the elders can give their time to teaching and edifying the body. But we got deacons running the show. There was a deacon at one church I used to... to uh, I, didn't, I wasn't a member there, but some in here were members there. He fancied himself the sheriff of that church, a deacon. He wasn't qualified to be a deacon biblically, much less an elder. But it's amazing that what you see in deacons today in a lot of Baptist churches is a defiance. They defy the pastor. They defy the, God, defy the godly people of the church. And a lot of times they defy God when their defiance ought to be in the streets, ought to be in the face of a lost world. You have deacons crying for tolerance and defying the word of God when they should be defying the wickedness in our society and crying aloud the word of God. The first deacons were defiant. Stephen was told to stop preaching. What did he keep doing? Preaching. He wasn't violent. He was peaceably defiant. He didn't fight when they rushed upon him. His face was as the face of a what? An angel. He even prayed for the people. Forgive them, Lord. Philip was defiant. He went about preaching when told not to. That's what we ought to be. In 2019, we need Christians. We need churches who are peaceably defiant in the face of all this wicked out here. Everybody wants to tell us we can and can't say this or this about God. No, we're going to say it. If you want my guns, come and claim them. If you want my Bible, come and take them. Come and take it. If you want me to bow down and worship you, then throw me in the fiery furnace. Because I will not. The God that you hate, who I worship, is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, O King Nebuchadnezzar. But if he chooses not to, we will not bow down to your God. I've been reading through the book of Acts, and I'm really interested in the geography of Paul's missionary journeys. And when you understand the geography and where these places were, some of the decisions they made take on a whole new meaning. For instance, at the end, Paul's first missionary journey went up into Galatia. And he went to Antioch of Pisidia, to Iconium, to Lystra and Derbe. And Derbe was the end of the road. And he was booted out of all those towns, lots of problems, told not to come back. And at the end of the road, he was in a little place called Derbe. Well, in ancient times in Asia Minor, the road exited Derby and went over a mountain pass that was well-traveled. And that road dropped down into Paul's hometown of Tarsus. Very easy way to get out of Galatia back to Tarsus and back to Antioch. Very easy over land. And beautiful as well. But when we read... In fact, Paul took that way in the second missionary journey. He left Antioch of Syria and traveled overland through Tarsus and over that pass back to Lystra and Derby, and that's where he found Timothy. But Paul didn't go home that way on the first missionary journey. It was an easy road home once he had been persecuted and all this. But what did he do? He turned around and went right back through every one of those towns, <coughs> back to the seacoast, and then came back to Antioch by the long way. That's called defiance. I find it funny in Acts chapter 14. Maybe we should heed this. 
Paul's in Iconium on this journey in Galatia. And uh, <clears throat> you know, what did I earlier I talked about them them falling down to worship Paul and Barnabas and was that an Iconium? I don't like to say something that's not true. Yeah, it was an Iconium. Uh, that's in, that was in uh, Lystra, Lystra and Derby. So I made a mistake. That's after they were booted out of Iconium and went to Lystra and Derby. And then a man was healed and then the people started to worship him as gods. They said, wait a minute. But in Iconium, it says that A great multitude of the Jews and the Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Unbelieving Jews doing what unbelieving Jews have done from time immemorial, stirring up people. And they made their minds evil affected against the brethren. So Paul and Barnabas are there. The Jews stir up the people so that the attitude of the people in this town is against the apostles. Against their work. They want them gone. But then look in verse 3. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. When you see therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Why did Paul and Barnabas stay there a long time preaching boldly? Because the town was turned against them. Because they wanted them out. Because they told them to go. They said, okay, we're going to stay here a long time now. (laughs) Defiance. That's what we need to be, peaceably defiant today in this wicked country. When I look at these, this angel telling John that I am one of your fellow servants, that I am one of your brethren, that I have the testimony of Jesus, and then I look at who these seven angels were and what they were doing... It shows that the saints don't only behold the judgment of God poured out on this wicked world, they get to be involved in meeting it out. That doesn't disagree with what's already been said in the Scriptures. Look what Paul tells the church. He rebukes the Corinthian church for all their divisions and their taking of matters in the church before secular law instead of resolving it. He says, know you not that we, that is the church, shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. The saints are involved not in just beholding God's judgment, but in meeting it out. We're going to be judging angels. Some of us will be pouring out the vials. And yet we don't even attempt to judge the things of this life and handle things biblically in the church. How dare Christians go to a secular court to resolve their differences? How dare they do something like that? When I think about these vials being poured out, of course, later in chapter 20, John sees thrones, and they that sat upon them, judgment given to them. He sees thrones, and then he sees the the souls of those martyred. So he sees the church judging and then he sees the the, the, the tribulation saints living and reigning. So there's a reigning aspect. But when I think about these vile judgments and I consider that these are saints meeting out the judgment, these are preemptive strikes. 
These last seven bowls of God's judgment are a preemptive bombardment upon the earth before the army comes. And that's an age-old tactic. You can go back to the Civil War at the Battle of Fredericksburg. The Union Army rained cannon fire on the Confederate troops on Mari's Heights before they crossed the river. A preemptive bombardment to weaken the forces. And then they crossed the river. Well, the cannons didn't hit their marks because the Union Army was slaughtered above the town of Fredericksburg. The Confederates tried the same thing at Gettysburg on the third day. Ahead of Pickett's infamous charge... Confederate cannons shelled the Union positions. A major preemptive strike, bombardment. Pickett's troops made it to the stone wall but were turned back and it was the high water mark of the Confederacy that fell. But in this preemptive strike of the seven vials, it will accomplish what those Union and Confederate cannoneers couldn't do. It'll prepare the earth for an invasion and nothing will stand in the way of the king and his army when they come. Praise God, we don't only get to behold the judgment. Psalm 58 says the righteous will behold the vengeance. But we, representatives of the church, the brethren, those that have the testimony of Jesus will actually pour it out. Representatives of the church in heaven pour out the bowls. Jesus said in heaven men aren't given to marriage or given in marriage when the Pharisees tried to trap him about a man who was married seven times, who would he be married to in the resurrection? He said they won't. people aren't given to marriage in heaven. They're like the angels of God. And therefore you've got an angel that's of John's brethren, the church. As angels to John because they were in their glorified bodies. What does this saint say to John? No, don't worship me. Worship God. Worship God, the great everlasting gospel that's proclaimed there in chapter 14, the angel flying through heaven, the everlasting gospel. Remember we talked about the four parts of the gospel? Not four different gospels, but four parts that emphasize different aspects. We have the everlasting gospel. Worship God as creator, for he made everything and he's going to judge it. We have the gospel of God's grace which is God's salvation through Jesus Christ. What Paul called my gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ with the additional revelation that's given to us concerning the church and her preparation in this period of espousal. And then we have the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. Messiah's coming. He's going to set up a real literal kingdom. They're all together. They're not separate. Men men have never been right with God apart from faith. Without faith, it's impossible to uh, please God. Whether you're Abraham in the Old Testament or us living today in the New Testament church age. Worship God. This is the everlasting gospel. Don't worship angels or saints or TV preachers or sacraments or traditions, rabbis, gurus, churches, teachings, or even doctrines. Worship God. That's a mouthful. Worship God. Anything you put ahead of God in your life is an idol. And that doesn't mean you have to fashion it out of wood or stone or precious metals. Just like lust is adultery in the eyes of God, just like hatred is murder in the eyes of God, Covetousness is idolatry. If you covet something in this life, 
more than you do God, then you've made an idol in your heart. Colossians 3.8, covetousness, which is idolatry. But we're to worship God. If you put something ahead of God, it's an idol. If you put something even with Him, then you're trying to cover Him up. If you put something ahead of God, you're an idol worshiper. If you put something even with God, you're ashamed of God. I think about the subtlety of Catholics and the Catholic Church. They won't put anything ahead of Christ if you pin them down on it. If you get in a conversation about who Jesus is. They won't put anything ahead of Him, but they blow about all day, all night, about the church and Mary, Mary in the church, Christ's teachings, salvation in the church and not without it. Until you can't find Jesus anywhere with a spotlight. They've covered him up. On New Year's Day, Pope Francis, that communist pinko out of Argentina, that people actually treat like he's some kind of God. He's a fool. He's the spirit of Antichrist. Pope Francis on New Year's Day proclaimed the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. I quote, she is our life, our sweetness, and our hope. That's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. As if you have to get through all of this stuff to get to Jesus and then get to God. Well, you can't get to God without Jesus, but you can't get to Jesus unless you go to his mother and go through the saints. That's not biblical, that's Babylonian paganism. It's no different than the traditions of the rabbis that the Jews follow instead of following the Word of God. Look, you don't need a doorman. You don't need a chauffeur or a secretary, guys. You don't need an escort or an attache to get you to Jesus, to your bridegroom. He is the mediator. Through Him, there's direct access to God. You don't need a priest. We're told to confess our faults one to another. King's English, correct a translation of the Greek. Not confess our sins. Our faults are our tendencies. We confess them to one another so that we can be exhorted and encourage one another in these dark days. But we confess our sins to God through Jesus Christ. We don't need a doorman. When, you, when somebody comes along peddling that nonsense, you give them exactly what Jesus gave Peter. When Peter said, oh no, we, we can't let you be crucified. Or give them exactly what, what Jesus gave Satan when Satan said, look, I can give you all these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is a powerful statement here in the book of Revelation. The testimony of Jesus equals the spirit of prophecy. I believe this highlights two aspects here, two truths here. What does it mean to say that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? It means two things. Number one, true prophecy points to or testifies about Messiah. So prophecy, the spirit of prophecy is Jesus. It's the Messiah. True biblical prophecy points to the Messiah. And we see that in the Old Testament. The prophecies always point to Messiah, something that the rabbis are too blind to see. 
True prophecy points to or testifies of Messiah. 2 Peter 1.21 says that the scriptures were not given by the word of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Jesus talked about this moving of the Holy Ghost and what his witness would be in John 15. In John 15 verse 26, it is written, But when the Comforter is come, this is one of those verses that the Charismatics forget to read, conveniently forget to read. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father... He shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit gives witness of Jesus Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit moves, the testimony is Jesus. When prophecy is given, it points to Christ. That's how you can tell what is the Holy Spirit and what is not. Does it give testimony of Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures? If it doesn't, you can throw it out the door. I was at a college campus not long ago when some students came out. They were claimed to be Christians and they were mocking the preacher and they were uh, siding with the, the atheists and the homosexuals against the preacher and they claimed they were Christians and they claimed that uh, they had the Holy Spirit because they speak in tongues. And I told them that they asked me if I spoke in tongues. I said, yeah, I can speak Nepali. I can speak Spanish, speak a little Hebrew, a little Hindi. No, do you speak in in, 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 in the heavenly language like we do. I said, you're not speaking a heavenly language. You're speaking a devil's tongue. You don't know the Holy Spirit. And then they started shouting, oh, 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 he's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He can't go to heaven. He's going to hell. He's going to hell. I just laughed at him. I said, you fools. The Holy Spirit gives testimony of Christ. And the Holy Spirit you claim to have yokes up with unbelievers and mocks the preacher. You, you don't know the Holy Spirit. You've never met Him. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit gives testimony of Christ. So if a man tells you the Holy Spirit said to do this and it doesn't testify of Jesus, then throw it in the garbage can as far as I'm concerned. But there's a second aspect here. If the spirit of genuine prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, then it means the spirit or testimony of Jesus involves knowing and foretelling the future. A future already written and purposed. So if true prophecy always points to Christ, then the testimony of Christ is able to foretell the future, is able to know the future. If you have Christ in his testimony, then you know the future. And you need to act like you know it. What is the sure and final acid test of prophecy? Isaiah chapter 41 is very clear. Those that have the testimony of Jesus ought not be ashamed of the future as it's written in the book of Revelation. They shouldn't shy from it. They shouldn't run from it. They shouldn't hide from it. They shouldn't claim these are deep secrets that nobody can know and you got this position, this position, this position. No, they should preach it with authority. Isaiah 41, 21 through 26, God is challenging those who would question His words. Produce your cause, saith the Lord saith the king of Jacob, 
Let them bring them forth. Show us what, show us what shall happen. If you're so true, if you're so authoritative, if you know a better way, then why don't you come show us what's going to happen in the future? Show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. Show us the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. This is written to the uh, nations and to the false teachers in Israel. If you know so much, then tell us what's going to happen in the future. Show us things that are to come hereafter that we may know ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, you are nothing and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. I have raised up one from the north and he shall come from the rising of the sun. Shall he call upon my name and he shall come. Upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treadeth the clay. Who hath declared from the beginning that we, have, we may know? And before time that we may say he is righteous. Yea, there is none that showeth. Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. Who is it that can tell the future? It's God. So you, you think you know so much. Tell us what's going to happen. And then God says, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to raise up somebody from the north that's going to come in here. And that's exactly what God did when he raised up Nebuchadnezzar who came in and overthrew uh, 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 Judah and, and ransacked the temple. The final acid test of prophecy is, 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 uh, is telling details about the future that come to pass. The difference between a born-again Christian and a professing Christian, the difference between a born-again Christian and a Catholic or a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness is that a born-again Christian knows where he is going when he dies. He knows where the unsaved family member has gone or is going. He knows what is going to take place on this earth in the next 50 years. He knows. He knows the future. If you are born again, you know. Why do you know? Because you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. If you have the testimony of Jesus, you have a spirit of prophecy. If you prophesy or proclaim truth, it gives testimony of Christ. John 16, verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, Remember, he gives testimony of the Messiah, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will show you the future. That's what he did. And these apostles wrote it down in the New Testament. The New Testament is part of the Bible. We know the future because we have not only the Holy Spirit, but we have the Word of God written down. These things confirm one another. Catholic doesn't have these things. Muslim doesn't have these things. A Democrat doesn't have these things. A Buddhist, a liberal, a Hindu, a homosexual, a Me Too philanthropist, those women marching in Washington, D.C., they don't have these things. All they can do is hope, like Muhammad, that they're poets instead of being possessed by a demon. That's all they can do is hope. Muhammad said, I don't know. I hope I'm a poet and not possessed, but I don't know. I don't know what God's going to do. 
The best these have to offer is a hope so. But we know so because we have the testimony of Jesus. We know the future. The very idea of an unsaved man using a Bible to try to prove to you that you can't know you're saved. Laugh out loud. In fact, the first thing the Holy Spirit gives a man when he comes into him is the knowledge that he's saved and the knowledge of exactly what's going to happen to him in the future. 1 John 5, 13, these things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Not written to the lost, not written to the Democrat or to the false Christians or the priests or the rabbis, but written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Our salvation that we teach and preach and believe is not a hope-so salvation of Mormons and JWs and Muslims. It's a no-so. We know the future of America. Let's preach it. We know the future of this country. We know where this country's going in the next 50 years. Let's preach it. We know the only thing that can change this country, and it's not MAGA. It's not a wall on our southern border. I'm not saying we don't need these things. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a wall. Not just 200 miles, but the entire 2,000 miles is what I think we need. Mr. President, you're wrong about that. But these things don't determine the future of America. We know the future because we have the testimony of Jesus. Let's preach the future. Let's warn. We know the future of this country and it is not MAGA. It's Bow the knee before the Messiah. So, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's tied to the future. That's why you can't preach the gospel apart from the return of Christ. That's why when you witness to the Jewish people, you need to be very clear. You people are looking for a Messiah to come when you should be looking for Him to return. The Holy Spirit gives testimony of Christ. And those that have the testimony of Christ know the future. We know the future, so let's act like it. Let's quit apologizing for it. The next few verses here in this chapter, verses 11 through 16, are what I call the unveiling. First 16 verses of chapter 19, the second coming of Christ. Verses 1 through 7, we call the Hallelujah Chorus. Verses 8 through 10, the marriage of the Lamb. And now verses 11 through 16, the unveiling. The king with his queen at his side is publicly unveiled. The public presentation of the Jewish wedding. And in that public unveiling, he comes to his home and sets up his house. His kingdom with His queen, the church. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened. That's the second time heaven's opened in Revelation. You remember the first time heaven's opened? John sees a door in heaven and a spirit, the Spirit says, Come. And He comes up. He's raptured up. Revelation 4, 1 through 3, we see heaven opened and someone goes up. 
A rapture. A door is opened into heaven and someone goes up. Here we have the whole heaven open and someone comes down. I got to thinking about this first phrase here in verse 11 and I just, I've been recently looking in a telescope in my backyard that Josiah was given for Christmas. I find it fascinating. We don't have a lot of nights anymore. We can look at uh, the stars because we've had so much rain. It's like we're living in Portland or Seattle. Um, Creation's truly groaning, at least around here. But, you know, to escape the vanities and, and, and foolishnesses and evils of this world, just get a telescope and go look at the night sky. You can forget about all your stresses of that day when you look into the heavens and see how insignificant we really are. And yet God loved us enough to send His Son. God didn't love us. Who would? 50 years after you're dead, nobody will even remember you. God didn't love you. Who would? But heaven's opened. And I've been reading through the Old Testament in the mornings in Spanish. I'm trying to read through the entire Bible in Spanish. I've read through the New Testament. uh, And I'm trying to do it in the Old Testament. I'm in the book of Deuteronomy. And I noticed something that Moses said to the children of Israel in chapter 10. I saw it in Spanish and then I had to do a double, double check in English and then to the Hebrew to make sure I didn't get off base here. But in Deuteronomy 10 verse 14, Moses says, Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The, also, the earth also with all that is therein. So we have a reference here to heaven and the heaven of heavens. So there's three heavens mentioned there. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6 is very much the same. Um, This is a a great verse. Nehemiah 9 6. It shows that the God of Israel is the God of creation. Thou even thou art Lord. Jehovah alone. Thou hast made heaven. The heaven of heavens. With all their hosts. And the earth and all that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. God didn't only make it, he preserves it. How foolish of man to think he can destroy what God preserves. If man destroys something, it's because God's using him to destroy it. But God made heaven and the heaven of heavens. So you have heaven, then you have heavens, and then you have the heaven of those heavens. Paul talked about being caught up He didn't know if it was a dream or a vision or a real experience like John had. But Paul talked about being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Psalm 115. Verse 16. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he hath given to the children of men. God gave us the earth to be stewards, but the heaven and the heavens, those are gods. And that's why man can only do so much in outer space. That's why we don't have a colony on Mars, despite talking about it for years and years. That's why, even though we went to the moon, nothing was accomplished. How many years ago was it that man set foot on the moon? Is there a station up there? Is there a colony up there? Is there even a single building? No. What has man accomplished from that? Nothing. 
Sometimes I wonder if space may be the final frontier, but it's made in a Hollywood basement. That's what I wonder sometimes. I don't trust anything the government tells me. It doesn't mean I believe everything is conspiracy. I just don't trust what they tell me. But the heavens are the Lord's. And man, man doesn't have stewardship in the heavens like he does here. So we'll only accomplish so much in outer space. In fact, uh, there's some of those that went to the moon. I don't, I don't know any of the details of this. I'm not going to get into it. But I've, I've heard and read, you know, where they claim they, they, they saw something up there. And it was a very clear warning that this is the end of the line. You're not going any further. And they knew that that's what was being communicated. So I just think that's funny when I read this verse that, look, the heavens are the Lord's. The earth was given to men, but the heavens are his. You don't mess with what's God's. But anyway, there's three heavens. The heaven, the Lord made the heaven, that's the sky. That's what we see up here. It's the atmosphere. And then you have the heavens, which are outer space. The second heaven. And then the third heaven is the heaven of the heavens. That's God's abode. Not that God is everywhere or can be everywhere at one time according to the scriptures. He's omnipresent. But there is a place that is the abode of God where the theophany or the appearances of God in bodily shape are located per se. The center of his operations in the universe where his full manifestation of glory resides. Something that Moses couldn't look upon. Moses saw his backside. His face shone like an angel for day. God had to hide him. But the third heaven is where that full glory resides. The heaven of heavens is the third heaven. The heavens is outer space and the heaven is the sky. That third heaven is beyond or above space and time. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. Heaven, the door in heaven. Heaven opened and John came up to the third heaven. Now we see the heaven of heavens open and something comes down through the heaven we see, through the second heaven space, through the heaven we see to the earth. Just give me a few more minutes to introduce this and we'll get into it more next week. But turn to Genesis chapter 1. I believe we often misread the creation account because we've failed to search the scriptures and what's said elsewhere in the book of Job or in the book of Psalms about the creation. Genesis 1 verse 2. Well, we're told in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep And God moved upon the face of the waters. So we often think the face of the deep are are seas here on earth and there was no dry land and the earth was just a sphere hanging in heaven and that the Spirit of God was, was moving on the Atlantic before there was water. But then God... So God made the light. Let there be light. And there was light. And God divided the light from the darkness and called the light day. And he called darkness night. So he divided between day and night before there was a sun. And then we get down to verse 6, the second day of creation. Look what's said here. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. So God made a firmament in the middle of the waters 
upon which the Holy Spirit was moving in verse 2. He made a firmament in the middle of those waters and it divided waters from waters. It didn't divide land on earth and oceans on earth from outer space. It divided waters from waters. And we see the Holy Spirit was moving upon waters. So the firmament divided those waters. And then look in verse 8. He, it divided, or verse 7, and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above. So it divided the waters. And so there was then water below the firmament and water above the firmament. And God called the firmament heaven. So the firmament is heaven. And that heaven divides waters that are below it from waters that are above it. So that wasn't just a canopy over the earth because we're told there's waters above it. Do we see water in outer space? Have we ever seen? We see frozen ice and particles. It's not necessarily water, but have we found water on Mars? We've got ice caps, but have we found bodies of water? But the firmament that God calls heaven separates waters below it from waters above it. So what the Holy Spirit of God was moving upon was separated. And what separated them on the second day, God called heaven. If we go down to verse 9, the third day, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. So regarding the waters under the firmament. God gathered them together into seas. And dry land appeared. So the waters under the heaven. Are what we see here in earth. In its atmosphere. Even in the sky and the clouds. You know the waters come down. They go into the bodies of water. They evaporate up. And it's related to the earth. But there's still waters above the heavens because the firmament divided them. Job is a very interesting book. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Genesis talks about events that happened long before Job. But Job was written long, long before Moses. See, Job doesn't even mention the law. doesn't mention Abraham. What we see is Job is men long ago before the giving of the law that understood basic truths about God from creation. They knew God was out there. They knew things about the heaven and the earth because they weren't blind by all the technology and man's entitlement that we are today. It's very interesting to see what men knew in Job's time. General revelation is allowed testimony. People ignore it. That's why men have no excuse. Even if they never hear the gospel, they have no excuse. Look at Job 26. Job 26. Job is answering his friends. You know, he's had these things happen to him. His friends come along and say, you know, you must have done something wrong. You must be at fault. And they're rebuking him. They have no compassion upon him. It's like, geez, guys, I'm suffering. Can you at least have some pity? And so Job responds to them, and they're kind of going back and forth. But Job says something very interesting in chapter 26, starting from verse 5. Now, remember, this is the oldest book in the Bible. 
It's not a record of the oldest things in human history. Genesis is. But Genesis is written by Moses. And God had to reveal things to him. Job says dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. So, in other words, death comes from things that are under the waters and the inhabitants that live under the waters. Hell is naked before him, and destruction hath no covering. He, that is God, stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and then hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne, and spreadeth his cloud upon it. He hath compassed the waters with bounds, or boundaries, until the day and night come to an end. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. He divideth the sea with his power, and by his understanding he smiteth through the proud. By his spirit he hath garnished the heavens. His hand hath formed the crooked serpent. Lo, these are parts of his ways. How, but how little a portion is heard of him. These are things that God has done. How little do we even know? And the thunder of his power, who can understand? So what we have here is Job saying that there are dead things and inhabitants under the waters. That death comes from those living under the waters. And then we're told that God has bound up waters in his thick clouds that hide his throne. So there are thick clouds that bind up waters that hide God's throne. And below those waters is where there are dead things, not above them. These clouds he's speaking of hide his throne, his cloud, his throne. And these clouds that hide his throne are a boundary where day and night comes to an end. At that boundary, past that boundary, there's no day or night. Day or night comes to an end. In verse 12, he changes from the waters bound up in these clouds to talking about the seas which are down on the earth. And then he goes back in verse 13 to talk about how God has garnished the heavens. So all of these things that Job is talking about are with reference to the heavens. Waters and, and, and hiding God's throne and dead things under the waters. And how God, it says in verse 7, He stretched out the north over the empty space. And then hung the earth upon nothing. So over the north is empty space and the earth is hung upon nothing. There's science right there that men couldn't discover until recent centuries. That the earth's not flat and fixed. It's hanging on nothing in space. There are waters. When we read this passage, we can discern that there are waters that are in the north. That means up, up, up. There are waters somewhere up there that hide the face of God's throne. Not clouds in the sky. Not what we saw hanging over this area on Friday, all that fog. These waters hide God's throne. 
The clouds can hide the sky temporarily, but on a clear night, we can see amazing things. On really clear nights, you can see nebulas and galaxies with a small telescope. But here we are told there are waters that are in the north, up, 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 that hide the face of God's throne, and they serve as a boundary for day and night, or a boundary for time. And we're all, we also learn that death is only formed from the inhabitants under these waters. The only place you're going to find death is under these, this water boundary. And death is in this universe. When we go to Job chapter 32 through 37, we have a young man come on the scene. A young man that's come and be, he's been quiet and he's listened. He's listened to Job's friends debate with him. And then he can't keep quiet anymore. He decides to speak up. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. So this Elihu speaks up. He was upset with Job because Job was justifying himself instead of God. And then he was upset with Job's friends because they had no answer to the problem, but they still condemned Job. They didn't have an answer, but they still condemned him. So this guy finally had enough, and he speaks up. And what we see in Job 32 through 37 is that Elihu has a few things to say, and much of what he says is true. And then we get to chapter 38, the Lord answers. The Lord answers Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with, by words without knowledge? Who is this speaking about what they don't know? Well, God's rebuke here is a rebuke of Elihu. Not of everything he says in these chapters, but what he says in verse 23. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice he will not afflict. In other words, Elihu says, he said a lot of good stuff, but at the end he makes a grave error. He says, concerning the Almighty, we can't know him. He, he makes the same error that Buddha made. We can't know him. He makes the same error that the Muslims make, that Muhammad made. We can't know him. We can't know what he's going to do. And here God says, who is this that's darkening my counsel by saying things he doesn't know about? What do you mean you can't know me? You can know me for I've revealed myself. That's what we learn in subsequent chapters. But then it's interesting at the end in chapter 42 that when the Lord rebukes, Job's friends, he doesn't rebuke Elihu, Elihu to his face like he does the other three friends. There's a subtle rebuke right here, but he doesn't rebuke him at the end. And then Job, his captivity is not turned in verse 10 of chapter 42 until after he prays for his friends. Notice how Job's captivity was turned after he prayed for his friends. But anyway, this is Elihu speaking. He says many true things about God and then says we can't know Him. Amazing. We can know God. 
We can't know him unless he reveals himself to us. That's what Buddha said. That's 100% true. But he has revealed himself to us. And we can know him. He's given us his word. He's given us Jesus. He's given us the Holy Spirit. But Elihu says something very interesting in Job chapter 37 verse 18. Uh, yes, chapter 37 verse 18. Hast thou, he's talking about, you know, concerning God and talking to these that claim to know so much of God, about God. Hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and as a molten looking glass? So Elihu describes the sky as something strong like a molten looking glass. Something that's molten is not transparent. <clears throat> It's not transparent. You can't see through it. It reflects back. It reflects back. It's molten. It's not transparent. A looking glass shows a reflection. I thought about something you see in Israel when you go in Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum there in Jerusalem. Outside, there's a children's memorial. It's a building you go into. It's very dark. And it's a memorial to all the small children who were slaughtered in the death, Nazi death camps. And they have, there's, there's a voice in there 24 hours a day just reading through the list of the names of children. And their names are just being read. Thousands upon thousands of candles. And then what you realize is, is there's not thousands of candles and there's a single candle. But the way the mirrors are arranged, it reflects back and it looks like thousands and thousands. Kind of made me think about outer space. You know, man claims that the universe is infinite. There's only one thing that's infinite, and it's God. How do we say the universe is infinite? How do we know there's not a boundary out there somewhere? How do we know in, when we look into outer space, we're looking into infinity? Well, the Bible says there's a boundary. And it says the sky is a molten looking glass. And it, a molten looking glass reflects. How do we know that what we see in deep space isn't just reflecting back upon us? There is a boundary out there because there's no spaceship could ever get to it, but there is a boundary. And so this idea that the universe is infinite, that's like saying God's creation is infinite and it's, it's, it's equating the creation to the creator. It's not, it's not infinite. We don't have any evidence of that. So much that astronomy claims has no evidence. I mean, it cannot have observable evidence. When you see a picture of the Milky Way galaxy from the outside looking in and an arrow pointing to where our earth and our sun is, that is fake news. It's impossible that we have an image like that. How would it... That no spaceship has traveled hardly beyond our solar system. No satellite. How would we have a picture from outside the Milky Way galaxy? That is an artist representation based on guesses and speculation. <laughs> But here we're told that the sky is like a molten looking glass. It's a solid object like ice or crystal. It's not talking about the sky. Elihu is not talking about the sky over our head. He's talking about something way higher up, something a great deal higher. There is a strong sky boundary somewhere. It's spread out and it's molten. And it reflects back. These are some interesting tidbits here in the book of Job. I'm not finished. 
But when John saw heaven opened, he's not talking about just the clouds rolling back after a storm. The heaven of heavens is opened. The boundary where time ends is breached. And someone comes down. It's an amazing consummation in human history. Next week we'll talk a little more. I want to look at Job 38 through 41 where God answers Job. Because then God sheds some light on what's been said here by Job's friends and by, or, or by Job and by Elihu concerning the heaven of heavens. Not only does it reflect back, we're going to learn that it's frozen. It's frozen. Not 32 degrees Celsius. Frozen. We'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about some things that are said concerning the north and how God's name sometimes is substituted for the direction of the north. And then we're going to look at what comes out. When heaven's open, what comes out? It's not the imposter on the white horse in Revelation 6-2. It's not him. It's not the imposter. It's something else. So heaven opens, and what's the first thing that those here on earth are going to see? That's what we learn in the latter part of this chapter. So I hope this was a blessing. We have gotten through verse um, 10 for sure and the first part of verse 11. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you what you've communicated to us here today. Thank you that we serve a God who's way out there beyond space and time beyond a boundary that you have set, a boundary that hides your throne, but yet, Lord, we can know you because you've revealed yourself, not just in the written word, but in the living word who condescended down and became as us. Not like the Mormons say that as God is, man may become, and man is what God once was. No, no, you are infinite God creator. Out beyond the frozen waters, Lord, and you came down so that we can be redeemed from our sin. We praise you for that. We look forward to the day, the marriage supper, Lord. Lord, when we can be a part of meeting out your judgment and righteousness, when we can follow you, having been conscripted to military service, and follow you when that heaven opens and you come down. We long for that day, Lord. We, we ask you to hasten it, but may we be a faithful bride and invite others to come. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, whosoever will, take of this water freely herald that until our dying breath or our raptured breath, whatever comes first. Lord, bless the food that's been prepared. I pray it'll strengthen our bodies as your word has strengthened our spirits. And we ask that you bless our fellowship. We pray again for those who are not among us. We pray for those who need to be saved in our families and in our spheres of influence. We pray for our president that you'd save him and that he would stand for righteousness even if he has to stand alone in Washington, D.C. And that you would throw down the wicked, Lord, Bring their hoary heads down to the grave, those that would, that would love and feast upon the slaughter of the unborn, those that would glorify what you call an abomination, and those that would hate your word and hate those servants of you. Bring them down to the grave, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.